Hello. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, my name is Jock Sarong and welcome to Blarney Books. Um, thank you to Joe and Dean for having us all here. Um, and a very, very big welcome to our special, I can say, international guest tonight, Josh Pomeroy. I don't know if I qualify, but thank you. I think you do. Um, now, th there's a few um, preliminary matters to go through. Um, one of which is that we do, in fact, have a special guest um, up the back of the room, who is Di Morrissey and her husband, Boris. Um, genuine Australian literary royalty. And we're hoping that um, if we all behave nicely tonight, we can somehow talk Di into coming and sitting in the... <laughs> all that too, sitting in the zany chairs on another night. But that's a discussion for another time. Um, we are, of course, gathering on the lands of the Gunditch, Mara and Peak Warung people, and um, we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, do you need to know where the exits are located? You don't, because everybody's staying. Um, and I'm just going to roll straight into talking to Josh. Now, the thing about Josh is that he has won um, a Kiwi Award called the Nio Marsh Award, which is extremely prestigious. He's also, um, in respect of the same book, which I will come to, been long-listed for a Ned Kelly Award, which is an award for Australian crime writers. You see the problem that's emerging here. Uh, he is often referred to as one of Melbourne's favourite writers uh, and is considered the resident um, novelist laureate of Clunes in regional Victoria. Um, Joshua Pomeray, who exactly are you? <laughs> I can see, yeah, I mean, um, I, by the way, I'm not using these descriptions about myself. I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I, we spend a lot of time out in Clunes. We have a place in Clunes, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, um, it's about half an hour north of Ballarat. So that's my, probably one of my favourite places on the planet. Definitely, I think, my favourite place in Australia. So we, we love it up there and we get up there as much as possible. But for the most part, we live in Melbourne. But you're right to point out... I am a Kiwi and I do apologise about that. Uh, no, I don't at all. Um, no, I, I am a Kiwi and whenever I go back there, I get the question, because I've been in Australia for you know a decade now, and I get the question, are you, and you, you, you assume this accent the moment, it's like you land and you go to step off the plane and suddenly something happens, this miracle in your vocal cords where you just pick up your Kiwi accent in an instant. And so when I'm back, people tend to forget I've been in Australia for over a decade. And um, it's this thing where I get this question, are you, you know, do you still consider yourself a Kiwi or Australian? And I'm in Australia, so, and my wife's Australian, so the answer I'll give is, well, I live here, don't I? Uh, but in New Zealand, I always say, you know, Kiwi through and through. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, you so, did that well. <laughs> so I'm duplicitous is, yeah. the, is the answer. Exactly. Um, Josh and I um, first met in Bali in 2017. Josh, had, Josh does a podcast called On Writing, which we'll come to again in a moment. But um, he had asked me if I would have a discussion with him on the podcast and I had to walk across a town in Bali to get to where Josh was in this villa with his mates. And um, we had not met. And when I got to where he was, he was perched up in um, the living room of this villa and his face was the colour and texture of defrosting chicken um, he had the worst case of barley gastro I've ever seen and he managed to... <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for here? How does he get it? It's not appalling. <laughs> he, he managed to endure an hour of talking to me on tape um, in a really stricken state. And, and if you listen to the recording of it, Josh sounds entirely professional. It was an extraordinary effort. Yeah, it, I mean, that's... When I started the podcast, it was to me you know, my literary heroes, such as Jock. Uh, and um, and so, yeah, I, I remember the, the day I, could, I was so unwell, I couldn't even come meet you up at the road. Um, and I think at one stage I said, do you want a bintang? And if you said yes, I probably would have died. So I'm grateful <laughs> you, you didn't say yes. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was a, I think, you know, that was a pretty... Um, Bad day for me, but a, a, an amazing moment. And I found, you know, everyone I've interviewed on the podcast and everyone who I've invited on and met has been, um, has helped me in terms of becoming a writer as well. So it's come full circle now that you're doing the interviewing, although I feel completely unqualified to be 
in this position. But um, yeah, no, it's been great. Um, so to, to unwind everything and go back, you grew up in Rotorua in a place called, have I got this right? Is it Makatu? How do you pronounce uh, it? So, yeah, Makatu was about half an hour away from okay. where I was. Yeah, yeah. So I was in a place called Kaharoa or Kaharoa. Right. Um, which is, yeah, it's just, a, I guess there's about 500 people there. Um, yeah. It's uh, my my primary school had about a hundred people, so it's a really tiny rural New Zealand town. Yeah. Um, we had it was the place where you know there was still a level of barter about how everyone went about their business. We, my dad, um, trained racehorses, but also had a secondhand appliance store, and so he was doing fixing people's appliances, and they'll come out and butcher our lambs, and so there's this kind of odd thing where money only exchange hands when it was completely necessary. Um, so, yeah, I grew up there, but then Kormievi was set in Makatu, which is about half an hour away. Okay. Yeah. And um, I, I've read elsewhere that you lost your mum at quite a young age. Yeah. How um, – is there an interaction with you as a storyteller that you had that grief in your childhood or not? Um, so, there's, there's a – I mean, there's a couple of things to unpack there. What I would say is – how I tell stories, um, it's entirely, you know, it's a subconscious kind of bias that I, I've noticed in most of my stories, the children will only have one parent. Um, and this has been the case with my short stories as well. So when I was writing loads of short stories and sort of trying to cut my teeth as a, you know, as a writer, um, I, was, I was writing these short stories and then someone pointed out that why don't you ever write two parents? And and I think that's that was completely subconscious. And then it was almost like that, you know, it was it, it gave me goosebumps when I realised that I was doing that because it's something I wasn't aware of. Um, and so I think there's loads of subconscious things in how I write that um, there's probably some kind of trace back to my childhood. Uh, but that's that's probably the most obvious um, sort of one where you can produce the evidence to say, well, this is how you write it must be because you lost your mum at a young age um i would also say i write you know uh, I, I tend to critique um masculinity in to some regard um certainly in call me evie uh and i did grow up with a my dad is very very blokey very small town rural new zealand um and you know the kind of one of those he's a figure in town that's uh, well known for being blokey, and so I think you grow up in a positive sense. In a positive sense, you, you got quite proud that people recognised your dad on the street and in the pub. He's always at the pub, um, and and you know there was a point where he said, "I'm the youngest of however many, but in my full brothers and sisters four, and then we've got loads of half brothers and sisters." So dad, he he was born in the forties and was a teenager in the 60s. So I think we can all do the maths yeah. on what happened there. Um, and so we've got lots of half-brothers and sisters, but in our unit of four, I'm the youngest of three brothers. And when I was 13 and both my other brothers had quit playing rugby, I was about 13, 14, and I said, oh, I don't want to play rugby anymore. I didn't enjoy it. And he said, oh, you're my last chance for an all-black. Um, <laughs> and and here we are. <laughs> I said, Dad, I, I, I didn't say this, but I thought, blame your jeans. I'm like, you know, skinny as a rake and I'm, <laughs> I'm going out getting concussions every second game or hurting myself. Um, and so it was, this, it was this odd thing where I go, this guy's deluded. But also, um, I, I, I just remember thinking that was his, that's the height of his sort of aspirations, you know. And so, and that was largely determined the environment we're in. I think if we were in... Winnipeg and, and Canada it would be hockey or somewhere else. There's these ideals about masculinity and, and the height at which a um, a man can sort of, you know, reach. Yeah. And so I kind of, yeah, I think largely that informs my fiction as well is a, for lack of a better word, a criticism or that. It's just my own sort of take on um, the shapes that boys make when they aren't, can't confront who they really are, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing that comes through in, in a lot of your early writing is um, what a big influence travel was. There's there's a yarn I saw about you getting stopped at the Canadian border. Um, Where was that, <laughs> by the way? I don't know. <laughs> You've um, done a deep I, dive. I job. dug pretty deep. Um, <laughs> you talk about sleeping on the ground in South America and, and you, the stories of those travels seem to have kind of stuck to you along the way. I'm just, I'm just searching. I'm thinking, who do I need to contact to pull this stuff off the internet? 
Um, See you for good, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, th- I mean, I think, I think when you're a young writer, you think you have to travel to have something to write about. Um, and that's, for me, that's mark of a lack of, I guess, sophistication or lack of understanding um, humans and, and, and... Well, it can be the reverse, can't it? That you can travel and then discover that a great way to process the experience of travelling is, is to write about it. Yeah, correct. So, so, I mean, it's definitely part of the learning curve, but I think the work you're producing um, indicates, uh, in, in my experience anyway, indicates a lack of sophistication as a writer. Um, I think you reflect the world before you because it's new and exciting and fascinating. Um, and less so about perhaps the relationships you make or to reflect on your own life um, back at the time in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, no, I would say travel for me um, is, it, it, when I started to travel, I was reading more as well because you're in hostels and all you do is get drunk, get hung over and read during the day. Um, in my experience, you know, traveling around South America, it, that's what it was. Um, and I remember I read Cat's Cradle, which I think is still my favorite book by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, in South America, and I just it, it was just one of those again a goosebumps moment where I thought I'm I want to be a writer. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's also you you get a, some sort of perspective on the world as well. So you have more to write about. But again, everyone has written what you're writing, and you're not you know I mean I feel like no one in this room is going to go on their over their you know OE between university and getting a job. So I can say this um, as a criticism and not offend anyone. Um, you're not producing anything unique when you go to South America and write about seeing dogs in the street and and partying and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's a pretty important part of learning to write as well. It it's wakes funny. you up. It wakes you up, yeah, and it makes you excited about writing. It makes, you know, it energises you because although you don't realise it at the time, you think you have a unique perspective and you think this is all new and exciting. Can we just have a little picture of where were you when you were reading Vonnegut and <laughs> what did it look like? Uh, I was... Um, I had just sold my, I had just sold my laptop and my camera and my iPod at the time, uh, <laughs> because I ran out of money in Bolivia. Um, but I had this book that I wanted to read before I logged off, if I could, um, and so I read it, yeah, in a day in Bolivia um, at a hostel, and yeah, and it was just a kind of, yeah, it was just like a click, you know. This is I want to write. I'm never going to produce anything this good, but I do want to write. Um, so the podcast on writing is now 60 episodes old. Yeah. Started in 2015. Qualifies for the pension? No, five Sorry? years. Almost qualifies for the pension. I think it does, yeah. It certainly gets a seniors card. Yes. Yeah. Discount. Um, Public transport. I wrote down last night, Charlotte Wood, E.L. James, Joyce Carol Oates, John Saffron. Um, it's Jocks been- are wrong. <laughs> It's not legal. I thought you'd do that to me. Um, and, and don't do that in answer to this question. What were the favourite experiences? Um, Who were the great If interviews? I didn't have gastro, it would have been the barley thing. Uh, that was that was quite... That would have been good. Um, Joyce Carol Oates wasn't good. Um, yeah, so she just got off like a red-eye flight and she she didn't want to be there. Well, let's you open know. up the question. Were there any shockers? That one was bad. Okay. Uh, the jocks are on one in Bali was a particularly horrendous. No, um, I think, I mean, there's no, not really any bad ones because you always learn. It's pretty exciting. I'm meeting, as I said earlier, I'm meeting my heroes. There's two seats right up the front, by the way. Right, <laughs> I'm not joking. Right in the middle, if you need them. Um, so yeah, no, I think you, I think just meeting your heroes, meeting people who are in position you w- would like to be in. Um, so. Uh, the most exciting interviews for me were—I mean, Charlotte Wood, she was fantastic. Um, uh, even Mark Smith, who's not quite a local hero, but you know, is—is—he's uh, a Surf Coast rider. That was great. He was early on. Melanie Ching was fantastic. Um, even AJ Finn, the American—he wrote *The Woman in the Window*. I mean, that was because it was such a big book, number one New York Times bestseller. You know, seven-figure movie deal the day it came out. Um, that gave me context about the writing world because he just came from New York. Well, and so let's let's stop there and take a little detour. AJ Finn wound up a yes. puff quote on the cover of your debut novel. Yeah, I know and, where and this is going, by the way. <laughs> Go on. And then the direction of his career changed substantially. Can you just explain how all that came together and, and what it means now? Yeah, so we, because uh, he was an editor in New York before he was a 
an author um, and he knew my editor in, in New York um, with my US publisher and so she contacted him to try get a yeah a, a, a blurb for the cover and then we got the blurb and it was going good and everything and they printed all the books and then right before it came out in the States a um, for lack of a better word hit piece came out about AJ Finn um, as being basically the talented Mr. Ripley um, so he was a complete ultimately you know a clever writer but basically a fraud um and then so everyone was frantically pulling his <laughs> his cover blurbs but um obviously we were printed i love that song it's it's aj good, it's a good tune <laughs> it's aj on the block so i can oh, hear um, you josh <laughs> yeah no so it was yeah so it was um i mean it was just, you're so excited to get he was you know one of the biggest certainly in my genre one of the biggest um authors at that moment in time and then when the new york times um, oh, the New Yorker piece came out about him urinating in cups in his boss's office at a publishing house and stealing manuscripts and uh, pretending he had a sick dog and all this kind of bizarre behaviour came out. Everyone dropped him very quickly, um, except us because we'd printed like 20,000 books and you but can't just pulp them. <laughs> but how do you process that personally? Were you worried about it? Did you think that perhaps the controversy would work to your benefit? Um, I'm, I, I'm one of those people who... Uh, as soon as it's in my head, it's going to wreck me. But normally, I am happy-go-lucky, you don't care. It was when I got calls from everyone saying, don't worry, this isn't a big deal. <laughs> and then I just started panicking because I was like, why is everyone telling me this isn't a big deal? I didn't think it was, but now I know that it is. Um, yeah, so it was this thing. I was in Brisbane doing visiting bookshops and everyone was reading the article in the industry at the same time. It didn't affect his sales. Most people don't even know about this um, controversy, but everyone was reading articles at the same time and I was between bookshops scrolling. And it's a long article and I'd stop looking at my phone and then I'm talking to booksellers and the whole time I'm thinking about this article because um, it was such a comprehensive kind of expose and just the, the depth of his deception. It was incredible. And, um, and then I got to the end. I go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Um, and then... My agent texts and I get an email from my US agent and my Australian publisher and everyone's going, because it was on the cover of the Australian edition as well, and everyone's saying, don't worry, it's not a big deal. And I was just going, well, clearly, you know, I didn't think it was, but now I do. Um, yeah, so I, d I didn't think much of it at first, but then, yeah, I was like, okay, maybe it is significant. Yeah. Um, I, I need to apologise to everyone for that large digression, which I caused. Um, <laughs> we were talking about on writing the podcast. Yes. And um, AJ was in there. But... You've spent an hour or an hour and a half with 60 writers. So in the aggregate, that you must have picked up a lot, even even just inferentially, about how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I started, you know. Um, I, I was just a, just had that belief that I could. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a very significant thing, by the way. A couple of thousand people listen to this thing of me in my living room harassing authors into giving their best advice basically but it's this thing where when i started i go there's, there's nothing really i wasn't listening to anything like it um this was about four years ago and I, everything i was listening to was out of the states and it was overproduced as far as i was concerned so it was very polished um and they weren't asking the questions i was interested in like how do you publish did you write short stories first um how do you research what's your writing you know set up like and so, um, yeah, so I just thought, well, I'll just contact publishers and it just sort of worked. Um, I would say you think you will, it's it's diminishing returns at, with this sort of thing because eventually people, you, you, you've heard every, not necessarily everything, but you've heard most things a few times, you know, and you find there are, every writer works differently, but you certainly find there are threads that all writers kind of do. And, and so... Yeah, for me, it was also just about contextualizing the the industry, the publishing industry, um, understanding some why not not why some books sell really well and others less so, but just understanding that books do sell well and books do sell less so, and it's this kind of incomprehensible, almost erratic kind of beast. This industry, you don't understand what's going to work and what isn't, um, and so I mean, like as evidenced by um, books that get passed up by every major publishing house and then go on and like the Tattoos of Auschwitz was passed up by every comprehensively picked up 
by um, Echo with a thousand dollar advance or something, and, and just all of a sudden it's number one New York Times bestseller. And so start, so when you get stories like that from the authors, it it does really put everything into context. So that's I think that's what I take away the most from it is um, it's irrational why some books work and some books don't. And you know if it was a fair and just um, industry, you know there's authors such as yourself, Jock, who would be consistently number one bestsellers. But we have, you know, other books. Um, yeah, there are other books. But that's, you know, and that's and that's from, because readers, everyone who reads Jock's books, and I think everyone agrees in the crowd, they're fantastic books. We are keeping the blowtorch on you here. Yeah, right? no, I'm turning, the, I'm turning it around. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, you know, so you just sort of learn about the industry in that way. Um, okay, third, third party blowtorch. Alec Patrick, uh, his debut won the Miles Franklin. His second novel was a book called Atlantic Black. And um, you reviewed it. And I was thinking, when I read your review of Atlantic Black, I was thinking about how interviewing 60 authors at great length might influence your abilities as a reviewer. Because it's a really unusual and effective review of a novel. You talk about the book, but you talk more about the way it felt to you and the things that resonated in your mind and you also talk about bumping into him can you explain a little bit about that piece? yeah so we were both in hobart um coincidentally and i was scheduled to interview him on the thursday no the tuesday and this was the thursday the week prior and so alec patrick or as patrick is a um, he wrote uh black rock white city which won the miles franklin but then he later published atlantic black uh, and so we were both at Hobart Airport. It, it just happened to be at the same time and on the same flight, but we didn't know that. And I was, I saw him and I go, I'm interviewing him next week. I should go say hi. But I saw him and um, I was like, oh, he, he's not going to want it. And I was just, you know, I was like, and so I was just staring at, you know, you do that thing where you just stare at the, um, the what are they called, the machine with all the sweets in it. What's that thing called? Vending machine, correct. Yes, maybe. Uh, it's like the Esky chili bin situation. Um, no, so so I was just staring at it, and I and I could sense him like over here, and I was just like, oh, I'm like, just go say hi, and I'm just staring at this thing, and then I kind of heard someone coming over, and he goes, Hey, are you Josh? And I was like, looked over, and it was, and he goes, Hi, I'm Alec, and. It turned out we were on the same flight, and then about two minutes later, over the intercom, they said, um, this In the review, you did the dreaded bing bong. <laughs> yeah, the bing bong. Uh, you're anyone on Qantas, you know, QF 104 or whatever to Melbourne, please go to the service desk. Your flight has been delayed. Uh, and we're like, oh. So we went, we went over the service desk, and it was delayed by four hours. Uh, and, we were, and it's in Hobart, so we're like, oh, we're going to taxi and get dinner and it was almost it was already like nine o'clock no one else was at the airport um so we just sat down in the airport and just had a chat and he's this guy that's completely uh aloof for back, lack of a better word and he was playing ukulele like the whole time i was talking to him it was this unbelievable thing. like it was almost i don't know if he was playing a song or what was happening but he was but just again the way you wrote this up was that it was only after you'd been talking for four hours that you realised he'd been yeah, playing yeah, he was a ukulele. A, was, was that a ukulele? This guy's <laughs> the coolest guy ever. And he had like a fedora on and he was just... And I was... Because I'd just read his book and I was completely fascinated because it's this enormously complex, very deep... Um, it takes like three readings before you have any idea what's going on. Um, and so I was fascinated by this guy. And so I got to talk to him for four hours. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of how... And and I already had pitched the review to um, to Lifted Brow, and I thought, well, I'll I'll mine him now for some stuff for the review. And so he helped me understand the the book. Anything that I was kind of missing, we kind of talked through, and that really helped with the review. Um, but it was a yeah, I mean, it was a bizarre, it was a bizarre uh, four hours. And as Jock pointed out before we arrived here, he didn't realise my wife was there because she wasn't mentioned in this anecdote, and that's because. Over four hours, he didn't even like ask her a single question, which I didn't because I was so enamored with the guy. And it was this bizarre thing. She was like, she was, um, she thought it was strange. And I was like, oh, he was a really nice guy. And she's like, how many questions did he ask you? And I'm like, he asked me one. <laughs> <Four hours. laughs> 
in four hours. No, but he but he's just that type of guy. He's but to be fair, it's a pretty weird context. It is, and he's completely aloof. And I was asking, you know, I was so interested in the book. So um, yeah, that's that's how it came about. But it was a very strange setting, and there was a thunderstorm, by the way. So it was like, I felt like the plane was never going to arrive, and we were in a horror film sort of thing. <laughs> Um, so as an afterwards experience, I recommend you Google this. The, the magazine is called The Lifted Brow and Alec Patrick's book is called Atlantic Black and it's a really very clever review. It's a great piece of writing. Um, so I, I feel like I've held us back from talking about your novels for far too long. Um, 2018, you were 28, 29 years old. You had written this manuscript and you had an agent. I like the way you use agent as a verb and you say that it was agented. Yeah. And um, you had six publishing companies fighting for your manuscript. Oh, fighting. Come on. Uh, is there, what's the question? <laughs> um, <laughs> How did no, it feel? What's uh, the question? I mean, yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was fantastic. I mean, the, the, what I always say is the most exciting thing was having a short story published. My very first short story except for Mianjin was more exciting than the first offer for publication. Um, and that's because it's a bolt out of the blue, whereas uh, by that stage, you know, my um, agent had primed me. So even before you get an agent, but before you do that, they express interest. So there's these tiny little milestones leading up to the book contract. But when you are submitting endless short stories to all these different, um, you know, literary magazines and competitions and things, you can be you can be in the dark and not hear back for four or five years, and then suddenly someone says, "I'm going to publish this out of the blue." That was more exciting for me than almost anything else that happened. And there are those ones who use the expression, "If you haven't heard from us in six months, the answer is no." Yes, yes, and you just assume that it's a no even when you send it, and you just sort of it's like buying a lotto ticket. Look, that's what it was for me, you know, sending off all these short stories. And so with the novel, you know, get interest from an agent agent signs you then they give you feedback if, if it's necessary to change the novel and then they go out and say look i'm confident we will be able to get this published and then you get an offer and so you've been primed almost before that happens um it was i mean yeah six publishers or whatever that was that was amazing um and it was a you know it was an exciting time and um i wouldn't swap for anything in the world but in saying that you know it is that thing where I think because it was a slow kind of escalation um, and because, you know, inevitably I f it was that thing, as soon as you get the first offer, you just know it's going to be published. So it didn't matter that there was other interest from other publishing houses. But then for you and the agent, how do you choose between the six? Is, is it simply a tender process and you look for the largest advance or are uh, there other things you're looking I'm, at? I feel, um, you know... I. It's like that kind of artistic integrity. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily go with who I thought would do the best job because the advance was in terms of editorially, because part you kind of balance this thing where I wanted to, I wanted to write full time if, if possible, and some publishers um, were prepared to support me in a way that that could happen. Um, I didn't take the highest offer, so I have some integrity, but um, um, but yeah, no, I settled on Hashit because when I met, I met with who became my publisher and editor and um, we clicked. They published books that I really admired and really loved. Um, my agent had worked really well with them in the past. So there's a whole bunch of factors that went into it. Um, but ultimately it was gut. It was a gut feeling. Yeah. So the manuscript until very, very late in the process was called In My Skull. Yep. And then later on it became Call Me Evie. Correct. And you've said somewhere along the way that um, – one of the big influences in bringing this story together was All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde and that that might have been the connection in, in using that name. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. Can it, you explain about that? Yeah, so, I mean, has anyone read um, All the Birds Singing, Evie Wilde? It's another Miles Franklin winner, I yeah, think. Yeah, so it? you should read that. Um, it's, I mean, it was, it's still one of my favourite books. It's reverse chronological, but one part, uh, I don't know. I'm not even going to be able to explain it. Um, but it's just structurally, it's this kind of masterpiece structurally. You know, there's, if, if it was structured just chronologically, flat to the page, it would be, yeah, it would be an interesting story, but it's a study of cause and effect. And so um, the structure for Call Me Evie was kind of inspired, but completely different, but it's sort of inspired by that. And I learned so much about structure reading that book, narrative structure anyway. So 
Um, yeah, no, it was, I mean, I still read it all the time. The version I've got is so marked up and dog-eared and it just looks like someone's left it out in the rain. But I, um, I still go back to it all the time because I think it is a real masterclass in, in narrative structure. And to me, the, the thing that the two books shared was um, that sense of, of, of deep disorientation, that, that you've got a protagonist there who's not at all sure of their environment or who to trust. Yeah. And that's a thing that Call Me Evie does really well. And I think I might um, eventually get tired of writing like this, but I like I like the idea of the reader not knowing what's n- not necessarily knowing who they can trust or understand um, where they're at in the story, and just that kind of uncomfortable, um, you know, hall of mirrors kind of thing where you don't know what is exactly going on and who's who's doing what. So um, there's another book by Samantha Schweblin, which is a um, it's a, I think she's Argentinian. It's a translation called Fever Dream, which sort of does something similar. So yeah, I think for me, I mean, I'm writing more, much more commercial stuff than Evie Wilde or Samantha Schweblin, but I, I find um, I learn so much from literary fiction and books like that, and um, that definitely informs you know my approach. Um, but in saying that, in psychological thrillers and suspense, I think it is important for the reader to not necessarily trust everyone all of the time and if they do to subvert that trust in in some way and you can you can amplify that that really worrying feeling of disorientation by the the character is in a state of confusion but then they're also the first person narrator so the reader is is sharing that feeling with them yeah yeah so when you inhabit a character who is confused um you do you do this thing where you you don't. You want to feel like you know more than the characters, and so I don't want necessarily readers to always know more than the characters. I don't like that thing in horror movies where there's someone walking and you can see the killer coming up. And I know that builds suspense. You know, you see the killer coming up with a knife. Um, but I, in my view, I prefer to be in the to see and hear and feel what the character feels, as opposed to be the clever outsider that can kind of work it out. Um, so yeah, it's just about for me. It's always about inhabiting the character and experiencing their world through their eyes, but not being, um, not having so much distance that you can figure it all out by the end. Um, one of the things I, I read about your process in leading up to a debut novel was that you had um, two of your favourites, a Cormac McCarthy and Murakami, yep. and that you had actually rewritten <laughs> sections of the Crossing and the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Yeah, like the whole thing. <laughs> What yeah. on earth were you looking for? What are you trying um, to do? I mean, it's it's a funny thing, you know. I think you want to. It's like, so it's okay for a pianist to go and play like Chopin or what? I don't know. I'm not a pianist, to, but to go play like the most complex um, work and to before they set out to create their own music and same with guitarists and same with anything. And I think to fully understand a novel, I I essentially rewrote these novels that I love and admired. Are you um, looking for voice? Is that what it no, is? No, I, I think I was trying to understand. It's like you, it's, it's like when your granddad gives you his watch and says don't do anything and, you, and the first thing you want to do is kind of pull it apart and see how it works. Uh, maybe so not. I just I had a pop fiction moment there. <laughs> <laughs> Keep moving. Um, but it's like that, you know. I just wanted to understand the inner workings of, of the story. I wanted to understand at what point me as a reader, I fell in love with these characters and why. And so I sort of reverse engineered these stories. I mean, if anyone's read Cormac McCarthy, he completely ruined how I write for years. It can really set you back because he doesn't use punctuation. And unless you're a genius, you just can't write like him. Um, and and the same with, to some extent, Murakami. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a real learning curve and I think you do learn a lot like that but it also contaminates your voice um, which is a real risk and that's something I didn't get over for years and years and years I was writing these horrible I had characters in Whanganui which is like this town in New Zealand um, with like a southern drawl and speaking like Cormac McCarthy's characters because I just couldn't shake his voice um, so I think there is a real risk when you do something as idiotic as that um, that you are going to take on the voice of you know, people of writers you deeply admire. Yeah. Um, you've been praised for leading with female characters and writing female characters convincingly. Um, in respect of Kate, who is our narrator in Call Me Evie, um, 
you not only wore tights, you shaved your <laughs> head and you shaved... The story came out last time I was over here, by the way. <laughs> you shaved your legs. What's what, wrong with that? What, what were you up to? I, I just want to know what you're up to. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, I did. Next question. Uh, no, I mean, I, I mean, it's... For me, authenticity is key. Um, there's only so much I can do to inhabit my characters, but I did learn a lot. You know, um, I did. Yeah, I shaved my legs. Nothing, nothing abnormal about that. Uh, I, sh- I, I can't believe you're going to dead bat this. I shaved my head. <laughs> I also shaved my head, which happened, Stevie, in the third page. That's not a spoiler. That I do understand. Um, and and you know, I hadn't shaved my head since I was little, and it is that f- the first time you get in the shower. That's the thing I remember. So that's what. I put in the book was just the sensations on your skull that you haven't felt for years. Um, another thing was like you shave your legs and then when you put on pants, by the, oh, this is weird, but when you put on jeans Lay on. and it feels, it feels really nice. <laughs> it feels, <laughs> feels completely different. Um, and so, so little things like that kind of did actually make it into the book. Um, yeah, so, so that was a way to inhabit that character. I think the other thing is when you shaved, when I shaved my head, People treat treat you slightly different. They do. They do. It's this weird thing. Like I got weird, goofy hair, so no one's like, oh, he's not going to bash me or anything. But you like shave your head and you walk down to Richmond um, train station, and people are like, oh, he could be could be a bit weird, this guy. Or he could be, you know, aggressive or what. You know, I, I feel like people just treat you slightly different. Um, and so that made it in the book as well. I mean, it's completely different for a woman to shave their head, but just the fi- just the way that. The gaze kind of just pauses for a moment. Um, yeah, so there's little things like that 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 definitely. I, I should share with you all that my nine-year-old daughter actually lent Josh some hair product to me. <laughs> it was a great moment. What she was, was it called? Thrilled. What was it called? Sexy hair. Sexy hair. Sexy hair. <laughs> Sexy hair. <laughs> and you both had a bit of a laugh about yes, that. Yes, we did. <laughs> um, but more seriously, you talked a lot to your wife, Paige, about yes, Kate, yep. the character. Yeah. So, so, so for me, I mean. You, it's in this day and age, you just can't afford to to get that wrong. I think um, there's all sorts of conversations happening around own voices, so writing from your own perspective and things like that, which I think is inhibiting in, in fiction. And it's it's a conversation that's still happening, and whether or not I agree entirely, um, it's not for me to necessarily say that conversation is still happening. But I would I would say that when you are writing from a female perspective, you if you get it wrong. And hopefully I haven't, but if you get it wrong, it gets pointed out often in the media. Um, Michael Robotham famously had a, a really bad review. He's an incredible writer. I feel like I can talk about this. He's very he hates this, by the way, the story. But he he had a review in um, the Saturday paper about the secrets she keeps that absolutely panned him. Um, don't bring it up if you ever meet him. By the way, um, he feels very strongly about it. Uh, and and anyway, so. Um, and that was about his voice and capturing an authentic female voice and all sorts of things. Um, and so I was very wary and, and very careful. And I think the, the most important thing you can do is bring um, people whose experiences you are writing about, essentially, into the room to, and have those conversations. My, like lots of my editorial team are female. My wife, as you mentioned, she is female, um, it turns out. So, um, so she was really helpful. My mother-in-law... Um, is one of my first readers, and she, you've got a question about Jackie Tracy. Don't this, you? this is more a statement. <laughs> I, I found this online. Um, you were being interviewed by someone called Astrid at the Garrett. Um, as you write, are you always thinking about the end reader? Pomeray. Actually, this is going to sound strange. I'm thinking about my mother in law. <laughs> I think about Astrid, her a lot. <laughs> Astrid, do explain. <laughs> Yeah, no, so, and that's that's exactly right. I, I bring Jackie Tracy into the room before my editors, before my wife, um, before anyone, because, um, you know, I am, this is pretty, it's commercial fiction, essentially. It's, I am writing to an audience, um, and she's, she is my audience. She reads a book a month. Um, she loves gripping, suspenseful narratives, but also wants something that's character-driven and something she's going to remember. And she is the most honest and brutal, uh, you know, at giving feedback. So she's a fantastic first reader. Um, but yeah, she. So she. I brought her in early on Evie and in the clearing and said, "Would a middle-aged woman talk like this, or would you know? Was is this your experience?" And she was really helpful. Um, now I feel I've done your disservice. We've we've got this far and we haven't talked about in the clearing, um, and we need to. 
So this has come out um, only weeks ago um, and the signs are already exceptionally good. It's got to be said. Um, a novel about a cult and a cult that looks and sounds a lot like The Family in the Dandy novels. I, it's not The Family though, I have to point that out. Right, yeah. Did the lawyers tell you to say yes, that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, perhaps you could tell us which cult it is about. Um, well... <laughs> If you were to make the mistake in thinking this was inspired by a real cult. Uh, no, it's, um, there's no lawyers in the room. Uh, no, it's, it's about, it's loosely inspired by the family cult, which was led by Anna Hamilton Byrne. Um, they were active from mid-60s through to, well, essentially the early 90s, but certainly at their peak in the sort of late 60s and 70s. Um, it's the, for anyone who doesn't know who I'm talking about, at the moment actually maybe just a quick show of hands does everyone know who the family is the family yeah cool so everyone knows you know the blonde bobs um overdosing children on lsd falsifying adoption papers um they they were pretty evil yeah and um i was particularly fascinated by the fact it was led by a woman because in the new age um, era of cults which is the 60s and 70s where there was lots of psychedelics anti-war sentiment um anti-capitalist sentiment you know there were lots of communes um there was lots of you know free love and so on and so forth um but they were all and always led by men um consistently particularly the most famous ones like jonestown you know so we um and the manson family so we when I looked at this cult and saw that it was this woman who had sway over many highly educated, upper middle class academics, psychologists, um, lawyers, when, when I realised that this was so different from other cults in, the, in that sort of new age era, I became obsessed with the story. So, yeah, it was just, I wanted to write that. Um, she died last year at the age of 98 and I think... Hashet collectively breathed a sigh of relief that we were less likely to be sued, although she did have dementia at that stage. Um, but yeah, it's it was it just sort of came full circle a few months before the book came out. She she passed. Um, but yeah, it was just a fasc really fascinating cult. And if anyone wants to learn more about it, the family, a book called The Family, um, which is this incredible piece of investigative journalism, that's that's a good jumping off point. Do you think having gone through the whole process of researching the novel, writing the novel, reflecting on what you wrote, talking about the novel, um, do you come to the conclusion that cults are interesting anomalies or do they tell us something important about ourselves? Well, I could talk about this all day, by the way, because I, I feel like my whole family's a cult. <laughs> uh, um, no, I mean, so two things. One, one, one I would say it's an, it's fascinating how many people deny that they would join a cult um, it's a common response is how could anyone be that stupid yeah it, but the, obviously people can the fact of the matter is we all believe fantastical things we all we all believe things that just simply couldn't be true are anti-science even my most logical science-based friends have at some point in time believed these incredible things so particularly children who grow up in a cult they you know, there was dialogue about why no one wanted to escape. That's insane. You know, that's all they knew. They didn't know the world outside. Um, why people are attracted to cults, it doesn't... You don't join a cult and they say, oh, by the way, we're going to kidnap kids. Or, by the way, we're going to drink Kool-Aid and commit suicide at once. That's not the first thing you learn. When you join a cult, um, they will, they'll start talking about the perils of capitalism or they'll, or they'll start talking about yoga you know, stretching. Oh, it's good for your muscles. And next they're talking about kombucha. No, um, <laughs> but but there is definitely parallels. You know, there are people, Scientology, you know, this is a this is an organi organization. Have we got any Scientologists here, by the way, before I go any further? I know they... You've been so heavily legal. <laughs> I know, I'm just checking. They sue a lot as well. Um, no, so, so Scientology, for instance, you know, pe there are incredibly intelligent, um, highly qualified people that are Scientologists, and you'd be surprised. Um, there's people like the QAnon thing. Like, there are people who believe things that are completely fantastical. And I have. Everyone has at some point in time. So the potential to join a cult and believe in something that, 
you know, some charismatic leaders espousing uh, before adoring masses, you get taken up by that and you would, most people would likely join the cult. The second thing I'd say is um, there are still very active, um, I don't want to call them cults, but there are, there are organizations and groups and stuff that are, that have parallels with cults that aren't called cults, but to many outsiders would, you would think are cults. And we were talking about this earlier, the people who are most damaged by cults are the people who don't voluntarily join and those tend to be the children. So, um, and when I say cults, often I talk about, um, so there are certain re religious groups that, are, that are, have a horrific track record with children. And these children are, they don't have a choice. They're indoctrinated. They grow up in this. And so I wanted to also write about that, how you never escape a cult and what you do to a child as a soon-to-be father, which we spoke about earlier. What you do to a child when they're young, um, that shapes the mental landscape and their psychological landscape for, for years, decades. Um, and so in the family, you know, many of these children who um, assimilated into the world outside and were ostensibly normal, the, the kind of face of the survivor, um, Sarah, I forget her last name, she became a doctor, she wrote books, and everyone thought she survived and left the cult and, and adapted to life outside of the cult. She, um, she committed suicide, and everyone thought she was totally normal and totally passed and healed and, and so on and so forth. So I also wanted to write about the fact that you, you never escape a cult. You'll, you'll, your psychology is completely different to everyone else well, in I think society. The genius of what you've done with the novel is that there are two characters here, Amy and Freya, one on the inside, one on the outside, and the reader is following two voices. And one is, is adopting the, the rational pose that we can adopt, and thinking, why on earth are you making these atrocious decisions? The other is inside, and we start to empathise after a few chapters and think, no, I can see where these decisions are coming from. Yeah, and and, and the fun of writing this was, um, you know, because there are two protagonists, and the, and the fun for me was uh, tr trying to build empathy for the person outside of the cult, because you because if if a children grows if a child grows up in the cult, you feel it's very easy for a reader to feel sorry for them, yeah. but then the someone who's skeptical of everything people don't like those types of people you know they want they want kind of believers or whatever and so someone who's so self-aware as freya but also so skeptical and almost narcissistic um is really hard to build that kind of empathy towards yeah. and or it feels like a cold and lonely world for her yeah yeah so she's sort of isolates herself from the world her cult so she sort of does yoga but acknowledges some of the like myths about yoga some of the less science-based kind of things about for instance as i mentioned earlier drinking kombucha and and so she's um she's really cynical but outwardly she still does these things and it's she's kind of presenting as this person who's like that um which again you know it, it shows she's duplicitous and, and i feel like readers struggled with it early on but as the novel goes on hopefully you begin to like her more and more mm. Um, did you have a mole on the inside when you were researching this? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I work closely and I still do um, with a psychologist who was really helpful and she yeah. lined up an interview um, with a, an ex-cult member. So she was a child who grew up in a cult. She had home surgeries performed on her. Um, when I met, we met in, in this, um, at the psychologist's office and she said I had a ledger of rules, you know, things I couldn't say or do, if you were to turn on a tap, suddenly she could completely disassociate because she'd been tortured. And when she hears water rushing unexpectedly, she, she often disassociates or she kind of recedes to this childlike state. And so when I was interviewing her, I was like walking on eggshells because you don't want to do anything or say anything to upset her. Unfortunately, I spoke to her for a couple of hours and survived and everyone was fine afterwards. Um, but yeah, that was that was for me um, the greatest exercise in understanding the characters I was writing about um, was just how damaged a cult can make you. And, and she, this this woman, um, whenever she sees a, a face on the street, she's convinced she knows them. Where everywhere she goes, she's convinced she's seen these people before. So she's got this real paranoia about strangers and thinks that they're all in the cult. Um, and so, yeah, so it was, yeah, that, that was my mole on the inside was working with, with these. So I also, um, 
I spent a bit of time out in some of the locations where the family was active. Again, this book isn't about the family, uh, <laughs> I should point out. But I did spend a bit of time out Lake Eildon, Mount Dandenong. Um, inevitably, I settled on North Warrandyte as the setting because my brother's got a house out there. I'd spend a lot of time out there. But it's also very isolated as well, so it worked really well. And, and where was the family base? Uh, so Lake Eildon, um, which is kind of... Does anyone know Sylvan? Um, yeah, so sort of northeast of like the Dandenong Ranges, but they were also active in um, Mount Dandenong. They had uh, they were pretty active in Brighton as well, so in, in the Bayside. Yeah. Yep. Um, now again, I, I feel I, I've done you a disservice, but um, I can see that I'm running out of time to ask you the millions of things I had written down. One of which was um, your relationship with your editor. Yeah. Writers' relationships with editors are always fascinating because you're so vulnerable to this one person. Um, how do you go with Robert Watkins? What's the relationship like? Uh, good. Yeah, so I had dinner with Robert on Monday, actually. Whenever I text him a lot when he's got a manuscript, so I'll send it to him and then half an hour later jokingly text, say, what did you think? <laughs> um, because he knows I can't wait for his feedback. And also, I, I've become more realistic. I mean, I've written two books plus a, a third novella, um, which will be published later in the year. And... Um, and I feel like I am now mature enough as a writer to know when my work's really crap. So the most recent thing I sent off to him, I'm like, it's awful. Let's face so it. You, you just Let's wrecked my closing <laughs> questions. I was going to say, so what are you working on now? <laughs> You'll go, actually, so this, uh, So this thing is, um, it's truly atrocious and I hope no one ever reads it. Um, but it's a good idea and hopefully through editing we can fix it. Um, basically, I mean, it's, it's a story about Airbnb. Um, so if a couple Airbnbs their place uh, and they return and find things are just slightly different um, and there might be cameras, uh, maybe there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things. There's also um, I tried to uh, write a bit about the gig economy, you know, um, and so uh, ride sharing services and things like that and how vulnerable we are when, in terms of surveillance. You know, I use a running app and every time I go for a run, if you were to look at my Strava app, you would see every Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, my runs, and you would know where I live and where I run. And that's, you know, it's pretty terrifying that that is publicly available. And that so you live in Rotorua, Melbourne, that, and yeah, Clues. Yes, all <laughs> at once. Um, no, and, and so you can, so if you go back through my Strava history, you can work out where my house is in Clunes, where we live in South Yarra where my dad lived, like you can very easily figure out my habits and what sort of person I am. And then you couple that with my Instagram and everything else that's publicly available. You could build a pretty comprehensive and accurate profile of me as a person. Um, so so that's what the book's about. But fortunately, um, no one will read it because we're going to throw it in the trash. <laughs> it sounds really interesting. I think no, it sounds this is a better terrible than, decision. It, than it is. No, we, um, this is so going back to the relationship. Um, I said to Robert, let's just let's just start from scratch. And he said, no, there's, I sent him 108,000 words. He said, no, there's at least 10,000 words we can use here, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was comforting. Uh, <laughs> um, On to brighter things. Can you explain the experience of writing um, on commission for Audible? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, um, so, uh, so I'm writing. So Audible is like they they're trying to be Audible. By the way, is a um, they they only publish audio books. It's an app. You can um, they're owned by Amazon. That's about all you need to know about them, really. Um, so they, I sold my soul, and they offered me. A, decent amount of money to write a book just for Audible. Uh, you can't, uh, my publisher can't publish it for six months after. So they, they have six months of selling this on their platform before we can publish it as a book. Um, and the, the they said they only want 40,000 words, which is less than a book. And I thought, I had an idea that was too short for a, for a full-size novel, but I reckon I could write 40,000 words. So um, yeah, so they do Audible Originals, which means um, that's their own content. It's not on any other platform. And they're trying to do like the Netflix thing and get market share. So they're buying up lots of these. And so I wrote this thing and I it took about a month. And I've never... Actually, In the Clearing was so much fun to write. So this is similar. But it was like started writing, didn't stop, wrote every day, got up, 
you know, did my routine, wrote every day for, you know, three or four weeks, had this thing that was basically what it ended up being, pretty ready to go, sent it off and they were really happy with it. Um, and we did, we went for a short editorial process because they are recording it. So there's less focus on, um, you know, well, there was no, no line edits at all really. Um, and yeah, so it was a lot of fun. Um, and for me, I think I mentioned this earlier. I mean, I, I mean, it was, for me, it was just a cash grab. I didn't think much of it, but I fell in love with the story. So Hashit will be publishing it later in the year. Um, and yeah, so I, ca I actually can't wait to see how it goes as a book because I, I do think it, it is a story that I really loved. And um, at first I didn't think it had the legs to be a novel, but it ended up, we sold 40,000 words and it ended up being closer to 60,000. Um, and yeah, it was just a lot of fun, yeah. Has it got a title we should look out for? Or uh, could it's that called, change? Yeah, that's the thing, you know. It's called Tell Me Lies um, is the title. And I always, I always hear the Fleetwood Mac yeah. song. <laughs> I think yeah. most people do. Uh, I'm, I wasn't as crazy about the title, um, but we, we, you know, we, it's a marketing thing. We had we had a very long chat about titles, and all my ones were pretty average. So, yeah. it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that titles? Um, I, I think maybe to readers, titles appear to be part of the the artistic making, but often that they're they're part of the process of selling the work to the public. They're as much a sales tool as they are. A creative act. Yeah, I, th I think it's a marketing thing. You know, um, I trust, I trust someone else to sell my book to people, because I, that's not my expertise, um, and and so part of the sales experience is how the book looks, where it's situated in a bookshop, and and to my in my experience is the title as well, and I come up with very very bad titles. Uh, I think I'm more literary than I am, and I have these big like meandering odd titles. Um, talking about Alec Patrick, he is with a very small publishing house um, with probably less uh, commercial considerations when they are making these decisions and he chooses the cover image and he chooses the title and the design and the typeset and everything. So he chooses, he's got full creative control um, but in saying that, you know, that's, I, that's not my area of expertise. So I, I wouldn't, even if I had that um, with my publisher, I, I probably wouldn't do it. I would refuse to do it. Um, and it's the same sort of thing when you, because um, we, when you sell like a film option, you you don't say I want to get in the writing room unless you've got ex experience like that. It's the exact same thing, you know. You don't want to um, necessarily because you can write a book, assume you can come up with a fantastic title or you know design a book or um, contribute to like a you know a, an adapted script so it's the same i have the same attitude with that i leave it to someone else's expertise um josh we've kept all of these good people waiting a long time um would anyone like to ask josh a question richard Uh, no, th no, no. So going back to expertise, um, I have a lisp a little bit. Does anyone notice? Probably not. And sometimes I swap Kiwi from Kiwi accent to Australian accent. And it's funny because I, I hate Amazon. So I'm like, I'm going to mess with them. And I've put in like an Irish character and like, I've just put in, someone changes their accent halfway through. Like I tried to make it as difficult as possible for the voice actor. Um, and I, and I had, they get you to have like a, kind of conference thing over the phone with the voice actor and she'll she went through all the voices and she goes so for this character i'm going to need to talk like this and she'll do the voice and then you go through this whole thing and it was incredible because you don't i don't think i don't hear my characters when i'm writing dialogue and it was this it, i was astounded i have so much more respect i mean i, I always kind of respect the art of voice actors but i was gobsmacked you know I, it, it was amazing how I'd never imagined their voices yet. When she made these voices, I was like, that's exactly how they sound. Um, so, yeah, I, I would never in a million years attempt to do that myself. No. Um, anybody else out there? Ah, Maya. Um, adjusted expectations, for sure. Yep. Um, I'd say... You know, with your first book, it's like you don't know what's going to happen. Like it's almost like a lotto ticket. It could 
in all likelihood you wake up in the morning have a look and you haven't won anything um or you could win the lotto or you could get like three or four numbers um so it's sort of like that you know for me um evie was i just didn't know what to expect at all um i had really high hopes but didn't didn't want to kind of um assume anything and with in the clearing, you have adjusted expectations. You kind of have an idea of what the market expects from you, where you sit, how much support you're going to get from your publisher. Um, and there's comfort in that as well. Um, you know it's not necessarily going to completely bomb, um, but you can still be a little bit ambitious. So you're, you're, the range of potential outcomes is smaller, if that makes sense. The other thing I found with book two um, and this might be because it's got better reviews, but I appreciated the reviews a lot more than book one. So book one, I didn't even really care much about reviews and publications for some reason. I didn't, it didn't register with me. With now, uh, in the clearing, it's been a completely different experience where I do read reviews and really enjoy reading reviews. Um, yeah, so it's, it's slightly different. So there is In the Clearing, which is Josh's brand new book. Um, copies for sale down the back, of course. And uh, I'd just like to say, Josh, thanks heaps for coming to our town and for talking to us. Well, it's thank, been great. thanks so much for having me.